vigilance and and uh, um, and surveillance just to keep us really well informed about what's actually happening. Took a moment then to consider science, and now it's got me figured out. With a whole world of words I've never spoken. Hi, you're listening to Sensationalist Science, a podcast about science, the media, and the truth behind those astonishing headlines you've read. I'm your host, GitMK, aka The Health Nerd, and today I'm bringing you a special episode where we'll break our format a little bit. News everywhere has been overwhelmed by the novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, that has swept the globe, and the disease that it causes, called COVID-19. There have been a huge number of headlines literally thousands of stories with people worrying around the world about issues such as health service capacity and what to expect from the virus if and when it arrives where you live. Today, I'll be interviewing Professor Stephen Corbett, who is a professor of public health and a long-time veteran of infectious disease control, about what to expect from the coronavirus. For our international listeners, some of this is specific to Australia, but most of it applies no matter where in the globe you live. The thing about a global pandemic is that it spawns more fake news than real. In times like these, the best place to go for advice is the experts, people who've dealt with issues like this before, rather than viral memes and tweets that sound scary, but are often not as correct as you might think. So without further ado, here is Prof Corbett and the coronavirus news that we are all incredibly keen to know. I'm talking to Professor Stephen Corbett today, the Director for the Centre of Population Health at Western Sydney Local Health District and Associate Professor of Public Health at the University of Sydney. We're looking at coronavirus and trying to answer some of the questions about what to expect. So the first question that a lot of people have is about modeling. And um, I know I've seen some very scary estimates of the number of cases and deaths that we can expect from coronavirus. And I just wanted to ask you, Stephen, about what uh, what you thought about the models and what Australia can really expect from this epidemic. Uh, my own view, Gideon, is that modeling has come of age, uh, that, that um, it's it's been around a long time, but I, I think now... Uh, there's a lot more confidence uh, in the outputs of these models. They are totally dependent upon the assumptions that go into them. Uh, there is a saying that all models are wrong, but some are useful. I think uh, in in the models that I saw about uh, how many cases there are likely to be in China, given what we knew about the disease in the early stages of the epidemic, it, they were remarkably prescient. They, they actually predicted the total number of cases successfully. In other countries, it's very different because the inputs are very different. What we're getting in Australia and America and Europe is, is if you like, the salting of the population by people who are unwell uh, from, from China uh, and from other places. And, and so the dynamics of the infection are different. Uh, uh, but I, I, I have a reasonable degree of confidence that uh, the modelers uh, uh, may get it right. But there are unknowns uh, such as what the mortality rate is we've we've got some idea from china uh, how many people ultimately will get infected and of course it does depend upon uh, the the vigor with which we pursue these social distancing measures 
So um, I think that's a great point to move on um, because you and some colleagues published a very interesting paper on social distancing and what people can practically do at the moment to help prevent the spread of coronavirus. And I wondered if you'd like to give us a bit of a, some info about that. Yeah, well, um, we were really interested to know uh, whether there was a, a case for concerted action by, by national, state and local governments uh, um, to, to limit the spread of the virus, which weren't perhaps as severe as, as the Chinese government put in place, at least ultimately, um, shutting down public transport, schools, uh, uh, um, cocooning people in homes for long periods of time. And so we had a look at what was known about the dynamics of the infection. Uh, um, how is the infection transmitted? Uh, um, what do we know about the virus and its behaviour? How long is its incubation period? Is there a period of asymptomatic infection? And, um, and there were some important things which emerged, particularly from the, the, the enormous amount of work that has gone on in China trying to characterise these things. And, and that is that a lot of the transmission seems to be happening at, at, in homes, in, 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 uh, in families where people are, are conversing and interacting within a metre or so of each other. Uh, the, the dynamics of infection are called droplet or local airborne infection. And, and uh, even among health workers in China, uh, half of those people uh, got their infection at home. So, so it was different to SARS. SARS was so dominated by, by people getting the infection in healthcare facilities. And, and it relates in some ways to the concentrations of virus in respiratory secretions and how in, in, in this illness, in COVID-19, they seem to be there quite early in the illness. So that means people can infect others before they themselves uh, make it to hospitals. Uh, um, uh, so, so there are some characteristics of the virus which make, it, make, make the dynamics of transmission uh, unique. And, and then what we tried to do was, knowing that, or knowing as much as we did know about that, apply that to a whole range of practical problems about what people can do uh, in schools, uh, in workplaces, in commercial establishments. Uh, um, and, and we came up with a list, and the list has been widely, widely circulated and even adopted in part by, by the US government as being a list, at least an initial list of practical things that people, organisations can do to limit the spread of infection. So I, I will link to that paper in the sh notes for the show. Um, there are quite a few. I think it was extremely useful. I, I also wrote a blog that delved heavily, used uh, heavily what, what you'd put out because um, a lot of people were asking me if I'd seen any advice. Um, and I think it was very reassuring for people to have some practical steps. Uh, there was one thing I wanted to pick up on that you mentioned, which was that the disease is primarily passed through droplet, airborne droplets. I think mm. a lot of people are a bit confused about what that means, because yeah. they yeah. think that means that it's in the air. Do you, well, can you tell us what that really, what that means? There is a bit of confusion. I mean, I think uh, traditionally there were two sorts of uh, um, transmission from the respiratory tract. There's, uh, and I guess the, the best known droplet infection is when people uh, uh, sneeze, or they, they produce a, a whole lot of water droplets of certain sizes, some of them, most, most of which are heavier than air, they fall on surfaces, so surfaces uh, get contaminated, uh, 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 tables, eating utensils, 
uh, hospital environments gets contaminated with these viruses and for a time uh, the viruses survive and people pick it up on their hands and then transfer it to their eyes or their mouth by touching their face. This is, is droplet, droplet and fomite infection, uh, uh, which, which is a characteristic way that influenza gets transmitted. Uh, um, the other kind is airborne transmission, and, and there are some diseases such as TB and anthrax, which, which uh, can be caught at a long distance away from, from, um, um, uh, from the person who's infected, they, you know, me, uh, 10 metres or more even. Uh, you can get infected by the bacteria surviving in a dried out, very tiny form and, and breathed into the lungs and infection gets established. Uh, some work that was done after the SARS epidemic in, um, in 2003 showed that there may be a kind of intermediate sort of transmission called uh, close range airborne infection. And that's simply the droplets. Droplets dry out very quickly once they're expelled from the respiratory tract and they shrink in size uh, to a size which is respirable into the lung. Now, it, you know, it, in, some, in, in some senses it doesn't matter because what that was evidence to me was that all of the mechanisms involved in close-range transmission, that is within families, uh, um, uh, seem to be more important uh, in, in this outbreak, and that's, a, that's where we should direct our preventive activities. Um, it makes it less likely that you'll pick it up going to the footy for example, but it doesn't right. mean you can't because you, you could be standing next to a guy who's infected or a woman who's infected and get it by droplet transmission. Um, but, but the idea that you can get it from someone 10 rows away um, is, is much less, we think, for this virus. And so that, that would explain essentially um, why most of the advice is for, pe uh, firstly, for people who are sick to self-isolate, but also to maintain, you know, a meter or two's distance, because that's likely that's to right. be the amount of distance that people need to stay away from. Exactly, exactly. And, and, uh, and, and that really uh, informed the, the substance of our advice. Uh, um, um, increasing ventilation rates in buildings is probably a good idea. Keeping windows open. I went to a school yesterday where there'd been cases, and and we advised them um, that maybe leaving the windows open in in beautiful April and and March in Sydney, when that's totally possible, might be a good idea. Uh, it would get you the number of air changes per hour you need to reduce the risks of infection. Okay. Well, I th I think that's some really interesting advice. Um, I had one question. One listener asked about super spreaders and whether yeah. they are a worry in this particular epidemic. Uh, so for the listeners, super spreaders are people who spread the disease to a disproportionately high number of further individuals. I think in SARS, there were some people who spread to 80 or even 100 uh, new cases of infection. So what's your take on that? Well, I think super spreading is a phenomenon. Uh, um, uh, uh, in part, the SARS situation happened because we were actually a bit ignorant about proper infection control in hospitals. So in particular, the use of nebulizers, uh, which are were commonly used to treat people with, with uh, breathing difficulties, uh, seems to be able to mobilise uh, viruses from the respiratory tract and spread them all around the room in an airborne fashion. And, and a number of cases in Hong Kong in particular were, were quite clearly associated with that. Uh, um, so... So that's changed now. We don't use nebulizers in these situations uh, uh, if we're worried about uh, infection risk. Uh, so, so changes in practice could, could have uh, affected that. But the other phenomenon may be, 
and we're not quite sure at the moment if it applies in this case, is that if the bug also infects the gastrointestinal tract, uh, people can you can then get transmission by the fecal oral route. Again, surfaces get contaminated. There have been a couple of studies showing that surface contamination is quite widespread and maybe the virus survives well uh, on surfaces. The super spreading person is less well characterized. I mean, are these people who excrete large amounts of virus? Some people on immunosuppression may, be, may, uh, may, may, for example, not be able to mount an immune response and have high levels of virus in their secretions. But the actual nature of super spreading is, is kind of yet to be worked out, to be honest. Okay, so it's it's not just someone who may be in contact with lots of people. It's probably well, someone it could, who... Yeah, it could be that too. I, I mean, um, we have the example today of Tom Hanks who went to the Opera House. Now, um, he, he, there's nothing about him or the virus that's caused it. It was just bad luck that mm. uh, a, fam a famous person was in a crowded venue when he was infectious. Uh, um, and that, that's a big headache for us in public health because we've got to try and uh, follow up people who, who who may have been in touch with him, but uh, but um, that doesn't mean that he is a super spreader. It means it was a super spreading. We don't know that yet. <laughs> we don't know if it was a super spreading event, but but you can imagine events like that where uh, uh, people were infectious at the wrong place in the wrong time, and and it was just very easy for others to come into contact with them and be infected. So so yes. just bad, bad luck might be part of the explanation. Yeah, I think there's some concern now over Justin Trudeau's wife as well, who's just uh, been... Yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and it's interesting that people who you think, by the nature of their occupation, would be cocooned a little from uh, 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 the, uh, the hoi polloi, uh, 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 are getting these infections. Okay, um, so I think we're, we're a bit short on time, so I'll move on to the last question that yeah, I had. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, which is just that... Uh, a lot of people have asked about kind of the, the long-term um, view because at the moment it, very, it seems, I think, to a lot of people that the next week or the next two weeks is all that we can think about. But what, what should people expect for, you know, three to six months' time? It's a good question, Gideon. And, and I, I, um, I mean, the predictions that I have seen for the duration of the epidemic is 20 to 22 weeks. But we have a totally unique situation here. We have a globally naive population to this infection. So that means everybody is vulnerable. With flu mm. epidemic, um, vulnerability is age stratified within populations because depending on when you were born, uh, you may or may not have been exposed to a virus that, that was similar to the one that's happening this year. But, but this time around, nobody has had this virus before. So we're all vulnerable. Uh, um, and, and so what that means for the duration and intensity of the epidemic is actually unknown. And I guess that's part of the fear that people are feeling. Um, but but um, the best estimates I've seen are 20 to 22 weeks. We also have the possibility, as China is entertaining now, of reinfection uh, uh, from countries that are experiencing the epidemic later. Uh, uh, reinfection uh, uh, beginning a new round of infection in, in, in the proportion of the population who haven't been exposed. So China, I know, is, is, for example, banning flights from certain places because they're worried about that now that their epidemic is coming under control. Okay, so I, I guess the answer there is just really that we don't know what to expect. Uh, I, I, think, I think the answer is vigilance. And, and, uh, mm -hmm. and, 
is vigilance and and uh, um, and surveillance just to keep us really well informed about what's actually happening. Okay. Well, fantastic. Thank you very much for all your answers. I know I appreciate it, and I'm sure the listeners will as well. And that was Prof Corbett. To clarify some things, the models that we were talking about can be found reported in The Guardian and The Sydney Morning Herald. Um, The Guardian is the Australian version, and The Sydney Morning Herald is an Australian newspaper. And they predict that a large portion of Australians will get infected and potentially die over the coming months without significant intervention by public health authorities. In essence, they follow an exponential curve where more and more people each day will be infected up to a point. Currently, the Australian government is intervening to try and prevent such an eventuality. Now, usually, this is where I would make some corny jokes. But honestly, it all feels a bit scary to me as well. As ever, my advice is not to panic, but I think it's worth thinking about your plans over the next few weeks and putting some effort into what you and your family are going to do if and when COVID-19 makes its way to a suburb near you. Stay safe and listen to the experts, not the terrifying, but often incorrect viral memes. This has been your dose of sensationalist science and media madness. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can find it on SoundCloud at SensiPod or wherever you get your podcast. I'm your host, GitMK, and you can find me on Twitter at GitMK or Medium at GitMK or Facebook at GitMK Health Nerd. Have a great week. And remember, if it sounds unlikely, it's good to be skeptical. Stay safe, everybody.